investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 57 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessling. Today is Friday, March the 6th, 2020. Had just a wild, wild ride in the markets this week. We had multiple record Dow point jumps and declines. The VIX still well above 40, so clearly panic in the market. A number of really important topics to discuss this week. First, the Fed implemented an emergency rate cut in response to the coronavirus panic. Is this what the market was looking for? Interest rates plunged to record lows as global markets fear a recession. Are rates heading to zero in the US? Xerox launched its hostile takeover offer for rival HP as M&A activity continues despite this market rout. Will this hostile offer be successful? And hedge fund Elliott Management unveiled a shareholder activist campaign at social networking company Twitter. What is the activist goals here? The US Federal Reserve executed an emergency 50 basis point rate cut in response to the market panic and potential economic impact of this coronavirus epidemic, which has really swept over markets and the global economy over the past couple of weeks. What happened here is the Fed lowered their federal funds rate to a range of 1.0 to 1.25%. This is down half a percent. And we classify this as an emergency cut given this occurred outside of the Fed's regularly scheduled policy meetings. The next one's coming up March 18th. And we previously discussed on last week's episode how the market was pricing in a 50 basis point cut. However, no one is really expecting this emergency rate cut. We expected it to be done at uh, the meeting on March 18th. So what the market did was think, wow, the Fed's really panicking here. I think it did more harm than good. This was really not what the market was looking for. Stocks fell pretty precipitously off this decision. Got a quote here from Fed Chair Jay Powell. He stated, a rate cut will not reduce the rate of infection of the coronavirus. It won't fix a broken supply chain. We get that, but we do believe that our action will provide a meaningful boost to the economy. We also had finance ministers from the G7 group of leading economies. They issued a statement pledging action to be taking and using all appropriate policy tools to maintain economic health as coronavirus spreads around the world. But if you look at stock price action this week, super volatile. You had a few big down days and a couple big updates, but nonetheless, the direction of stocks here is downward, specifically after this 50 basis point rate cut. I believe the Dow dropped about 800 points, so a few, a few percent on the day. Clearly, the market didn't like this. It's probably causing more harm than good in terms of causing more investors to panic. Um, and it's really just sentiment here. Ultimately, 
this whole coronavirus issue, if people are getting sick or even if they're not sick but staying at home from work, really just slowing down the global economy, right? You have supply chains. If factories aren't up and running, then you have supply chain issues. You also have uh, demand issues if people aren't going to, to restaurants, they're not uh, you know, consuming energy and things of that nature. What's a rate cut going to do? And even if a rate cut could do something, in many central banks, say Europe, for example, rates are already negative. So they really have no ammunition left in their weapons to assist the economy here. So in my opinion, these rate cuts really not accomplishing a lot. Stocks really just prove out that theory. On the other hand, you look at gold, gold prices on track for their best week since the depths of the 2008-2009 financial crisis. The last time that the Fed implemented this emergency rate cut, gold up over 7% this week and having a great year, year to date. Gold risen over 11% this year uh, compared to a decline in the S&P 500 of nearly uh, 10% and peak to trough S&P Definitely approaching bear market status here. I believe it's down about 15%. So equity investors certainly concerned. What are your thoughts on this emergency rate cut, which we haven't seen for a dozen years? Yeah, I mean, it certainly looks like the Fed was looking for any reason to cut rates because let's say in a hypothetical scenario where an antidote um, or vaccine is proven effective, like in the next couple of weeks, what you're not going to see is the Fed then reverse that emergency rate cut they would likely stand pat and make some comments about um, long-term viability within the economy and, and wanting to have stability. And so there really is a bias towards cutting rates. And you, you really hit the nail on the head with regards to, you know, a rate cut in this scenario where there's an actual viral um, risk to the, to the world's health. It's just not effective. And so in situations like 2008, um, where there's more of a, a lending crisis, that's where a rate cut can be effective, as well as I believe there's another example of emergency rate cuts in 1998 after the Russian crisis um, and long-term capital management. Now, those are examples of their more financial risks that are being taken care of by the rate cut and it will bring, bring about stability. But in this situation, really not much to do there. Now, the other thing that I found interesting was Jeff Gundlach came out, I believe it was yesterday. The Von King. Yes, the Von King himself, uh, discussing how he thought that the Fed panicked with this rate cut, which is likely true. Um, you know, it's like a panicking, but he did hedge that with just because it is panicking doesn't mean it's the wrong move. Mm -hmm. um, but in this situation, I, I just, uh, you know, really think that the efficacy of this rate cut is muted. But as well, as you mentioned, we do have an FOMC meeting coming up um, March 18th, concluding on March 18th. And as of this Friday afternoon, which when as we're recording, the market's now pricing in a 65% probability of a 75 basis point rate cut uh, at that meeting, which would then bring the, the, the benchmark rate down to 0.25% to 0.5%. And as well, the market is pricing in a 35% probability of a zero rate by zero percent rate by December. So it really looks like there's going to be some drastic moves by the Fed over the next number of months. Yeah, certainly. And we talk about the Federal Reserve's mandate and they have uh, basically that dual mandate, which is uh, stable inflation, roughly 
2.2% and uh, maximum employment U.S. job numbers came out uh, today. Fantastic. Uh, absolutely crushed expectations. So looking in the rear view mirror, um, U.S. economy doing great in terms of employment, uh, inflation in check as well. However, my thesis is that the market really drives Fed policy, not their dual mandate if you look at inflation and employment numbers. So what the market was pricing in was basically 100% chance of a rate cut this month or 100% chance of a 50 basis point rate cut this month. And the Fed basically had to do it. They didn't have to do it in the emergency fashion that they did. I think that was more so negative than anything in terms of signaling. However, you talk about what the market's pricing and now that effectively guarantees that the Fed is going to enact additional cuts on uh, March 18th this week. Uh, and the Fed is apparently uh, doesn't really care what the, what the stock market does, but the futures traders do and the futures traders effectively guide Fed policy. So basically, if the market's going down, the chances that the Fed is going to cut interest rates increases, which then effectively forces their hands to so a market-driven monetary policy, not this independent Federal Reserve that is data-driven. But then they go with the excuse that, oh, it's uh, tightening, financial dis uh, tightening financial conditions, which is just Fed speak for the S&P 500 tanked. And when you mention the futures traders driving uh, Fed market policy. What that really means is just that because it's being priced in, it's kind of a, f a feedback effect where because it, the market is pricing in a, price, uh, a rate cut, then the Fed does not want to surprise, in quotations, they don't want to surprise the market with any policy moves. So then they just do effectively what has already been priced in. Yeah, exactly. And I say that monetary policy could be affected via algorithm that just listens to the market, make sure that the yield curve is not inverted and basically do what the market says, which would make things a lot easier, a lot clearer and fully transparent. Uh, but nonetheless, the point here being that no matter how many rate cuts you do, it's not going to survive. It's not going to prevent or resolve this whole coronavirus issue. Probably the best policy from a government perspective would be to just declare like two week holiday, everyone just stay home. Right. And in that scenario, uh, coronavirus will sort of uh, people get over it and it will stop the spread and then go back to our closed stock market for a couple of weeks and everyone can just relax, uh, watch Netflix and that stay at home basket of stocks could do even better. However, with this rate cut, we really saw just an exceptional move in bonds this week. Uh, interest rates uh, yields on the 10 year plummeted to a record low. That's right. An all time low dropping below 1% on the 10 year for the first time in history. And this really just follows the Fed's desperate moves, which I believe caused increased market panic. And what investors did is they rushed to bid up uh, treasury bonds. They bid up bond prices and this caused yields to plummet. The 10 year finished the, the week at a yield of 0.76. It notched a record intraday level at around 70 basis points. And we're talking about 10 year bonds yielding 0.76% in an environment where inflation is roughly 2%. And many think that inflation understates true consumer price inflation, especially if you're looking at PCE instead of CPI. And we just heard from Warren Buffett roughly, you know, a week or so ago when 10-year yields were at 1.3%. He indicated how un unattractive they were there, but now yields on a real basis, that is uh, nominal just 
less uh, inflation. So real yields going deeply negative. Obviously, U.S. Treasury yields still positive on a nominal basis. Haven't followed European Japanese bond yields into the negative territory. However, you know, our, our yields here heading to zero or perhaps negative. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, if there's a 75 base point rate cut uh, at the March 18th meeting, I think there's a very real chance of that 10-year dipping below zero, um, almost, I, I would almost say a certainty. But, you know, just put it into context and how quickly this has moved is the 10-year Treasury, you know, now sitting in the, I, I believe it's 0.76% um, around that that range. Well, that's down from, it was 1.9% as of January 1st. So, you know, bonds are thought of as a very, you know, a lot less volatility as an asset class compared to equities but there's the the volatility that we discussed in the stock markets earlier that has definitely uh, infected the bond markets as well and then when you look at the 30 year uh, where it's down at one about 1.25 percent currently well just at as of January 1st it was at 2.4 percent so just you know really low bond bond rates and you know what are in terms of some other in things that are tied to our interest rates. You know what, Julian? What did, what do you think this has in store for mortgage rates? Um, you know, with specific to Prime. Yeah. Prior to getting to other instruments, I still wanted to chat about uh, bonds here, specifically the Barclays Global Ag, which is the benchmark global index. Now I should note that investors should be aware that it now has record duration, i.e. record sensitivity to interest rates. So this passive bond index, which many investors just blindly allocate to, if yields tick up 100 basis points, you could be facing a 10% loss on that. So certainly be aware of the sensitivity to interest rates at this point. At this point, certainly if you held uh, long-term bonds here, you're sitting, uh, you're sitting pretty at this point in terms of just the significant gains that you've been able to harvest. But nonetheless, you should be aware that they're turning massively risky, just given that duration risk combined with incredibly low yields, touching on different asset classes, as you indicated, big effect on mortgage rates. They fell to their lowest level on record. In the U.S., the average rate on a 30-year fixed mortgage fell to 3.29% from about 3.5%. Some comments on the futures market, you indicated by the end of April, it could be down uh, by another 75 basis points, which would be huge because that's just 25 basis points higher than the near zero level that had uh, initially the Fed went down to during the global financial crisis, and they didn't increase rates from that until December 2015. The other thing uh, up in Canada, uh, the Bank of Canada, obviously, as we indicated uh, last week, that the Bank of Canada would follow whatever the Fed did, and they, in fact, did do that at the regular policy meeting. They did not enact an emergency rate cut. However, uh, they did cut by 50 basis points and signaled to the market the potential for additional rate cuts to mitigate the material negative shock that COVID-19 poses to the economy. And with that, we had Canadian banks dropping their prime rate, which affects consumers through variable variable rate mortgages, line of credits, uh, potentially car financing as well. So that's something to keep in mind. 
in terms of some uh, economic news here, Goldman Sachs economists, they see that U.S. likely to avoid a recession this year. However, they did downgrade U.S. growth to an annualized rate of 0.9% in Q1 and 0% in Q2. So people are starting to whisper the R word recession. That's a potential possibility here. Bloomberg's Financial Conditions Index, which combines nine separate measures, it fell for the day and it keeps just plummeting. Now back to the low it hit during the panic conditions of the sell-off back in uh, Christmas Eve 2018 when the S&P 500 officially hit the last bear market. And that's something that we perhaps could get in this cycle. But ultimately, my thoughts, you know, Rates could temporarily fall to zero or perhaps a negative. That's not necessarily outside of the spectrum of possibilities here, uh, which you need to consider. Uh, you, if we go back 40 years to the, to the early 80s when bond prices were double digits, seemingly doing nothing but going up, and I believe they, they peaked in the mid-teens when you had uh, Paul Volcker heading the Federal Reserve and you had high inflation rates while well, people claimed the bonds were certificates of confiscation no one you couldn't pay a yield high enough for many investors they just absolutely hated bonds and now 40 years later people can't get enough of them so my point here being that these things move in cycles so you shouldn't expect bonds to hit zero and stay there forever they certainly can and will move up at some point but you should think of a, a spectrum of possibilities and the risk reward with respect to to doing that and if you're if you're buying here who's really buying the tenure to hold to maturity at 76 basis points i mean most of the price action here it's just speculators uh looking for that price gain as rates tick lower so it's largely short-term traders driving the market in my opinion i don't think anyone's really looking for a fantastic return at 70 basis points when uh, the U.S. government is actively trying to depreciate your currency at 2% per year. So just keep that in mind. Bonds aren't necessarily a great uh, risk return here. However, people do like having these long-term bonds in their portfolio. Just recently, they've been negatively correlated to their stock market. So I believe the TLT ETF is up around 20% year-to-date, certainly bailing out many portfolios on a mark-to-market basis. So keep that in mind, just the insurance aspect. You definitely shouldn't expect great long-term returns here. I mean, if you hold the 10-year bond, you're going to get 70 basis points, 76 basis points, 0.76% over the next 10 years and a likely negative real return. So keep that in mind when making any portfolio and asset allocation decisions. Thus far, this market route and tremendous volatility is not halting M&A activity. It's continuing. And this week we saw a situation that we've discussed on past podcasts, the Xerox HP hostile M&A situation. They've been really going back and forth over the past 10 months, Xerox threatening this takeover, tr really trying to get them to engage in takeover talks. HP not having any of it. Well, Xerox officially launched its $24 per share hostile tender offer for all the outstanding shares of rival HP. And what a hostile tender offer refers to is basically filing the official tender offer documents, launching this tender offer such that shareholders of HP could 
tender their shares to Xerox and it's it's called a hostile offer because it is not supported by the target board of directors. The interesting aspect here, which we previously called the minnow trying to swallow the whale, is that Xerox is much smaller than their target HP. It has a market value of only seven billion. Meanwhile, their offer for HP values the maker of printers, printer supplies, and personal computers at nearly 30 5 billion, so it's really interesting structure that you don't see too often, typically in a takeover situation, specifically a hostile one. Uh, you nearly always see a larger acquirer going after a smaller target, but the tables have really turned on this one. The main strategic rationale on this deal is this is really just a sunset industry. So what they're looking to do, they're looking to consolidate and cut costs. They estimate that synergies or cost cuts could yield $2 billion per year in savings. And that goes straight to the bottom line in terms of EBITDA. In addition to that, they think there could be more than 1 billion in additional revenue synergies, which are more speculative, but certainly possible. Xerox is claiming that a combination between them and HP would equip them to better deal with industry-wide declines. Obviously, printers, not a growth industry. PCs, not a growth industry. So they're really trying to consolidate, which you typically see in sunset industries. We saw that in autos. We saw that in rail companies. So it is really just the playbook that companies do. Typically, it's on a friendly basis, but this one is hostile. Nonetheless, HP not having any of this, they wasted no time in rejecting this offer. They stated that it, quote, meaningfully undervalues HP and disproportionately benefits Xerox shareholders. However, they did indicate that they're open to a potentially different deal combining the two companies. So that's something to note. Uh, the other really important aspect of this hostile tender offer is that Xerox did st start a proxy fight. And the goal of that proxy fight is to nominate candidates to the board of directors get their candidate on the board such that they can have friendly board members who will agree to uh, to a takeover and basically get this hostile deal to a friendly deal because in the US it's very hard to be successful on a hostile tender offer if the target wants to put up roadblocks. There's this uh, legal defense called the poison pill, which is quite difficult to get around in terms of affecting a hostile takeover. It just makes uh, takeover extremely cost prohibitive. So that's the main reason why they're running this uh, sequential or this proxy fight at the same time, trying to replace HP's board of directors. So really kind of a classic, classic hostile deal where they launched tender offer uh, with a coordinated proxy fight to try to replace the board and ultimately lead to a deal. What are your thoughts on this one? How do you think it's going to play out? Yeah, so a little bit of a, a timeline here, as as you did mention, we've talked about this a few times, but for those who are just joining the process now, in November, Xerox was offering $22 a share. So now this offer is at $24 a share. Um, based on based on market pricing at the time, and so that is a 30% premium to the unaffected price at November at November 6th. So they did bump a bit, but I don't know if that's enough to actually entice 
the HP shareholders. Uh, then moving forward into January, uh, Xerox announced that they had secured $24 billion in, in financing for the proposal, but that was really a levered proposal in terms of the financing. There was a lot of debt in that structure. And when HP did come out against the deal, the, in addition to the valuation, which they've somewhat addressed, the other issue that they had, despite being, um, they did indicate, as you'd mentioned, that they were interested in a combination but what they were really worried about was the capital structure of the pro-form entity. There'd be a lot of that $24 billion in financing uh, that would come in the form of debt. And that's something that in a industry that, you know, isn't growing a lot, you know, that becomes quite a burden on the company. Uh, so I think that's really the biggest issue in terms of the deal structure and why it would make more sense for HP to acquire Xerox. Mm -hmm. um, as well, just before all this happened this week, HP, as they've been well aware of this since, as I mentioned in November, they had pledged, back, pledged to buy back uh, about $15 billion of their stock over the next three years with $8 billion coming in the first year. So really all that's doing in terms of the proxy battle to come is to say to investors, you know, you haven't been happy with the returns over the last number of years, but here's a step that we're taking to address that in, in returning capital to shareholders through buybacks. Um, the tender offer does expire at, at April 21st, but it can be extended by, by Xerox. Um, you know, really, as, as you know, in my opinion, they likely need to, to bump a little bit more and or restructure some of the, uh, the financing for the transaction to get both shareholders and um, potentially get HP on board. Yeah, in terms of the tender offer expiry, clearly they're going to extend this. This These hostile takeovers tend to be a very protracted battle. They can take a long t time back and forth. It'll take them a while to uh, if they're going to be successful in this proxy fight, and that's really representative of what the shareholders want. If they do want this uh, takeover to be successful, they'll be able to replace the board. But if not, then it's effectively dead. Right now, the market's pricing in about 50-50 chance of this deal happening, merger yield quite high, I believe north of 20% uh, annualized. So interesting situation, obviously quite risky given it is hostile, but they did put their cards on the table. They launched the official tender offer. And so this is a really interesting, huge takeover battle that will be pretty exciting to watch how it plays out. It's been a while since we saw a really interesting shareholder activist campaign, but that turned around this week as feared activist investor Elliot, they took a $1 billion stake in social networking company Twitter with the ultimate goal of ousting chief executive officer and co-founder Jack Dorsey. Now what happened here, Elliot took a 4% position in the company with the goal of shaking things up and ultimately getting the stock price to go up. Since IPO, Twitter has not performed very well, certainly has vastly underperformed competitor Facebook, who boasts eight times more users and a market cap almost 20-fold higher. Uh, what Elliot's goals here, their main concerns regarding Jack Dorsey are twofold. Number one, he's a part-time CEO, which perhaps is not appropriate for such a large public company because he's also the chief Chief executive officer at Square, which is significantly uh, larger, I believe, and his 2% stake in Twitter is worth about 500 million.
million and his stake in Square is tenfold that, so like five billion. Where is he focusing his attention? And proof of that, their second concern is that Jack recently announced plans to move to Africa, which gives you the sense, is he distracted? How focused on creating shareholder value at Twitter is he? However, Jack Dorsey came out and defended his role of leading both these companies, Twitter and Square, and saying that he's now re reconsidering his planned trip to Africa this year. Quote, I have enough flexibility in my schedule to focus on the most important things and I have a good sense of what is critical in both companies. As for his move to Africa, he said he was re-evaluating these plans, citing everything happening in the world, particularly with coronavirus. I have a really interesting comment here from NYU professor Scott Galloway. He really summed it up, this whole situation up nicely in one sentence. He is a Twitter investor as well, so he stated it from those perspectives. He indicated weak governance, a part-time CEO, relocation to Africa, damage to the Commonwealth, and poor returns. Stakeholders deserve a board and CEO that command the opportunity Twitter occupies. So there you have it. Basically summarizes the situation here. Twitter shareholder returns have not been great. This situation was really just a layup for an activist investor. You have a part-time CEO, which is really inappropriate for a company as large and as important as Twitter. And nonetheless, the CEO moving to Africa, like that's just weird. What's up with that? Uh, so it's kind of an easy target, in my opinion. Elliot's goal here, they're, they're pretty uh, intense, I should say, in terms of what they're able to enact to pressure managements and boards into um, bowing to their demands. Clearly, they're probably going to run a proxy contest to replace directors. And sometimes they come out with uh, embarrassing information on executives and board members to get them to uh, bend to their commands. So it'll be interesting to see what happens on this one. And you think about Twitter, it's a pretty amazing resource with a lot of potential, isn't it? Absolutely. And just going back to Elliot, I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, they do have quite a history of forcing CEO departures in their activist targets. We've talked about them multiple times uh, on the podcast, but, you know, not to belabor the point too much, but, you know, he wrote, you know, Jack Dorsey really does a lot of things that aren't, aren't typical at all of a, a CEO of two public companies with a combined market cap of about, I think it's about $57 billion. You know, like he's doing 10 day meditation retreats. I believe that was in 2018 in Myanmar. Uh, as well, you know, he's very one of the big proponents of intermittent fasting. So in terms of, you know, being atypical isn't in and of itself a bad thing. You know, being a, a not a typical CEO can be viewed as a very good thing. But a lot of them are, you know, somewhat of head scratchers, especially when you're also splitting duties. And as you had mentioned, Square having a way larger effect on his net worth. But, you know, in terms of some of the other critiques of, of Jack Dorsey with his handling of Twitter is one of the biggest is shutting down Vine in 2016 as it was quite popular and now it's even more we're using some hindsight bias of course bias of course with the popularity of TikTok it mm -hmm. really looks like a big miss on Twitter's behalf right could Vine have been TikTok which is just massive these days and hugely valuable 
Absolutely. And in terms of innovation, it looks like they're now launching a stories feature, but this is really just a third, third derivative of innovation where Snapchat had stories and then Instagram came and wipe kind of wiped that out. And right. so then Twitter would be coming in with that as well. That's not really innovation. And you think about Twitter, what have they done over the past five years on the platform? All I know are that they changed the star to a heart in terms of liking tweets. Amount of characters in a tweet. Uh, oh that, yeah, for, yeah, for certain characters. There's a blue check mark. Uh, obviously, you don't think those require billion dollar investments and workforce in the thousands or perhaps tens of thousands. The other thing is users are desperate for an edit function, which still hasn't happened. And, uh, you know, you got to wonder if this was if a different CEO came in, would he much better be able to monetize the platform. You look at certain management changes, for example, Microsoft, when it transitioned from Balmer to Satya Nadella, who absolutely just killed it. He turned around the business stock is just absolutely on fire ever since that occurred. And you wonder, and I'm sure Elliot's thinking the same thing. Can that happen at Twitter as well? Especially bringing in a turnaround artist, because as of right now, this is a turnaround story because they do actually have a quite a good product that has a lot, as you'd mentioned, a lot of potential, but it is well, a this turnaround. this is a business that can run with no CEO in my opinion. So yeah. perhaps that's why it doesn't really matter if Jack is there part-time or no time <laughs> at all. However, if they did have someone really focused on maximizing the value here from the platform, who knows what that could do to the stock. Well, I mean, our, ourselves, we have used Twitter as an ad platform, and I can say that it is, in terms of targeting an audience, it is f quite far behind both Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Um, so that's something to note just for actually using the, your, the, how they how they monetize their platform. But you know, you mentioned that this is a kind of a slam dunk as an activist. Just some stats behind that: the total return of Twitter stock over the last five years has been a 28.4% loss. Mm. Uh, that's on a total return basis. And then as well, since their IPO in November 2013, uh, they're only up about 28%. Uh, so this really is somewhat of a slam dunk in terms of an activist campaign. Although I will give the one caveat that historically displacing founders from a Silicon Valley tech startup hasn't always had a lot of good results. Yeah, good point there. Nonetheless, interesting activist campaign and we'll see how this one plays out. I think, and well, at least in my opinion, I think Elliot's going to be pretty effective here. I'm not sure if they'll actually get Jack out, but certainly I wouldn't be surprised to see them settle with some board representation. Nonetheless, that's it for episode 57 of the Absolute Return podcast. If you liked it, always check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. Leave us a review if you'd like, and definitely follow us on Twitter. My handle is at Julian Klamochko, K-L-Y-M-O-C-H-K-O, and Mike, your Twitter is? I'm at M underscore Kesslering. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-I-N-G. Yeah, thank you for listening. And until next week, best of luck in your trading and investing. We know it's volatile times out there, but just stick with the game plan and uh, stick with your asset allocation, right? Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. 
Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at AccelerateShares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.